the moment you start struggling, that's your window of opportunity to figure out how you're going to get, how you're, what, where does this going to go? Because it's not the end. I went through all these things. I walked through all these fires to show other people how to walk through their fires. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's, and thank you for all of the love. The iTunes reviews, the direct messages on Instagram, the emails, that kind of correspondence is turning this from just a show into a community. Not only does it let us know how we're helping you, but also what kinds of topics and guests you'd like us to cover. So keep them coming. If you haven't left an iTunes review, please consider doing so or telling friends and family about 10,000 No's so we can reach and help more people. Speaking of helping people, that's all today's guest, Sam Morris, wants to do. Sam's bout with severe allergies and asthma as an infant and all through his life, really, brought about a high level of social anxiety for being different from his friends. He found solace through a solitary sport, tennis, a collegiate athlete whose love for the game kept him focused and clean. Sam didn't start down his slippery slope until an injury forced him to stop playing around the age of 20, leading to his addiction to drugs and alcohol. Now it's his mission to help others who are battling those very same demons. Whether you're an addict yourself, related to an addict, or you just feel like you have habits or tendencies that control you more than you care to admit, today's conversation will leave you with a greater understanding of how to free yourself to really live the life you want to live. Here he is, Sam Morris. What might be best for our listeners is for you to describe in your own words what it is that you do, a recovery specialist, or how, how do you describe it in your own words? Um, I kind of, I say I'm a recovery coach and also an addiction consultant, uh, meaning that there's recovery coaching, which is, you know, the one-on-one stuff with the guys that, that need direction, either that are yet to be sober that need that direction on how to put down the drink. And then there's also the other end of it where guys are maybe fresh out of rehab, which is a huge, there's a huge hole in the industry, the, the, the kind of the way the process there from coming out of rehab to real life, that adjustment is just, it's massive. So helping those guys as a recovery coach and that's one-on-one stuff. And then as an addiction consultant, I also do some stuff with a company called Hired Power, which does um, sober transports, um, interventions, and um, sober companion stuff, which is a sober transport basically will take a, a, a client from a safe environment like a hospital where they were um, admitted to a rehab facility. When you said there's a little bit of a hole in the industry, because uh, you and I have spoken about this before, mm-hmm. and describe what you mean by that, where people kind of acclimating back into their life or their previous job, how that works. Yeah. So that was a, for me personally, um, my, my sobriety journey, I guess you could say started around 2007 in 2007. And one of the problems for me for so long was that, you know, I would go to rehab for 30, 60, even 120 days one time and 
come out and it's like basically the real world just smacks you in the face and says, okay, so you've done all this work and you've changed and you've stopped drinking and you've been protected for 60, 90, 120 days. But you know what? I'm still here. You know, the wife is still here. The kids are still going to wake up crying. Yeah, you still got to go to work. Like all these things. And then there's, there's really no real way that that's, exists for people to make that adjustment on their own. It's, it's, a, it's a, a sketchy slope because like I said, you come out of that protected environment where you're, you know, you're in process groups and you're getting therapy two times a week maybe and you're doing all these like you know, fun and sobriety activities like hiking and all this stuff and you come back and, just, and, and you've changed and you feel like you've changed and you have and you've done this amazing thing, but the real world, real, rehab time and real world time don't match up. And so you come out of, you come out of rehab and you think that, you know, everyone should still kind of be catering to you in a way. And it's, it's kind of a bad way to put it. But the, the way it is, is like, there's just no adjustment period between the stepping out of that facility and back into your real life. So um, partly from my, from my experience, I just said, like, you know what, I would love to get guys as they step out of that facility and help them transition back into their real life. Because I've, I've done it and I've been there and I actually did make it work at one point at the end of it the last time I went I made it work so I know I know that I can help these guys transition with dealing with uh, confrontations with your spouse or you know a work a work situation that might not be so comfortable all that stuff is like it's new to the person that's newly sober because they don't have that crutch anymore they don't have the fallback that was their alcohol or even the even the behavior around the alcohol right I, I always say like putting down the drink is the easiest part of getting sober because like you can stop drinking and then you think all your problems are gone, but really there's, there's so many root issues to it. And whether that's drinking or drugs or food or whatever it is, the easiest part is stopping that because that's a symptom. That's a symptom of a greater problem. So the easiest part, is, it's like, you know, it's like blowing your nose. Like, okay, your nose is clear now, but what are you going to do about the infection that's inside of you? On that point, I want you to take us back to your childhood because I know you had about with sickness when you were when you were younger i would love to be able to to trace back you know your journey and and kind of how you came to be here how you came to you know to to be addicted yourself and then to be helping others but um you were were you born in vermont yeah so yeah i was born in vermont um small town up there i mean everything's small up there but uh (laughs) it was a super small town and when, when i was born um so I was first of all during the pregnancy, my mom had to had to have an emergency C-section. My umbilical cord was around my head, and I was coming out backwards. And as I grew up, as I kind of like became a toddler and all that, you know, a lot of things cropped up. And in the '70s in Vermont, you know, that we didn't know the things we know now. And so my parents would feed me a little bit of peanut butter, or like the, the spring. I was born in December, so the spring rolled around, and all of a sudden I just started wheezing about like February or March. And so like, it, it turns out I had really severe asthma and really severe food allergies. So th- th- this had like some profound effects on me. One is it created a huge gap between like me and my friends because my friends would be able to do things that I couldn't do. They could eat things I couldn't eat. And, you know, it, it just made me feel different. And kids would pick on me for my breathing because I was like, you know, always like wheezing and heavy breathing. And like, if you can't eat like a piece of cake at a birthday party, the kids would be like, why aren't you eating cake? You know, and all that stuff. So that was one thing that happened. So that, that created some social anxiety in me where I just felt really uncomfortable in social situations. Now, there's almost a, a, the other side of that sword is that um, I felt unsafe every single day of my life. Like there was no safety in my life at all. Like no matter what, every morning when I woke up, it was like 
you know, I had the question in the back of my head is, am I going to eat something today or am I going to breathe something today? It's going to make me go to the hospital. I mean, there was for every spring for the first, I'd say 11 to 13 years of my life, maybe even like 15 years of my life, there was at least one trip to the hospital, emergency room, go in the hospital, get up, hooked up to the breathing apparatus. And staying overnight and the oh, whole- for like weeks sometimes, sometimes like two, two weeks at a time, 10 days at a time. Oh my um, God. Yeah, I remember the, one of the most extreme times. It was uh, it was spring, summer, and I was playing Little League Baseball, and I was, having, I was actually having one of the best games I've ever had. It's the first thing I remember about this game. is like I had a couple base hits, and finally I, I, I got a triple, and I, was, I sprinted around the bases and ended up on third base. And all I can remember is like the smell of the green grass. Like The grass had just been cut all over the field. It was this giant recreation area. And I remember looking up at the sky and seeing like the mountains and the blue sky, and it all just kind of started spinning. And I couldn't catch my breath. And so I, I was standing there on third base and just looking around like, what's going on? Like, I have no idea. The next thing I know, the next, I have a brief memory of like my dad carrying me across the field to the parking lot. And the next thing I know is the next morning I'm, I wake up and I'm in a tent in the hospital, a full on, like full body all over my bed tent with like just oxygen and medicine being pumped into it. You know, that was, that was traumatic. So I had these, like, I had all these experiences as a kid that just like made me feel completely unsafe in the world. And so one of the things about the social anxiety was it was, it was the aspect of the, the feelings are different from my peers and all that stuff. But it was also the aspect of like, the really only safe place I know is either my house or a hospital. You know, outside of those two places, there's nothing that feels safe to me. And so, um, and even in my own house, there was under, under the stairs, we had this, uh, this little cubby hole with like a little a swinging door on it. And it was about like, I mean, maybe 10 square feet, really small. And uh, it was, I used to hang out in there because it was like, I knew where all four walls were. I knew what was in there and I would put a little light in there and just read or play games or do whatever in there. And it was just like this, it was the, one of the places where I felt safe. And then, um, so like, you know, playing little league, my parents are around and like, and I get this impression in my head now that like nobody can protect me. You know, I have like this, this, all these sicknesses and I'm not safe if I'm with my parents and I'm not safe if I'm without my parents. And so it just drives home this like this fear that yeah. I just I gained this fear of just basically everything people places things whatever it was it, I mean it was it was the people because of feeling so different and, the, and getting picked on and stuff like that and it was like you know I just didn't I didn't know what was going to come next places like I could be walking around on a on a field one day and just all of a sudden my lungs stopped working at what point or do you still deal with this to this day? Is yeah, the, the food allergies I still deal, deal with to this day. Um, the asthma has, I've made some, I've learned later in life, like dairy is a big thing with, with allergies and asthma. It can really exacerbate the problem. So finally, when I was about 35, I gave up gluten and dairy and my asthma just disappeared and went away. So at that time, I also got some allergy testing done to see if like the allergies had gone away as well. And the, the reaction from the prick test was so severe. They're like, we don't need to do the rest. Like you are, you are deathly allergic to peanuts still. And at that point I was like, you know what? I'm 35 years old. I've made it this far. Like I'm, I'm not going to just continue to get tested. Like this is not, it's not happening. So walk me through, because I know you have a strong athletic background. Yeah. You know, you were talking about little league, mm-hmm. um, hitting a triple asthma attack you're in the hospital you're an avid skier i don't know skier or snowboarder yep, skier and so you were able to do that you played tennis at a high level mm-hmm. um, how did you make that transition walk us through that and and did substances become an issue at that early age 
or was that something that was later on in life? So the the tennis was the tennis was my big thing. Skiing was, I mean, if you grew up in Vermont, you're kind of it's kind of like growing up in Florida and being on the water. Like if you grew up in Vermont, you're going to be on the snow. So that was like from a really young age. And for some reason, you know, like I would always carry my inhaler with me, and and if I needed to take the, and I would use my inhaler probably once a day as a rescue inhaler. Um, and that was until I was you know mid 30s when I when I changed my diet. But um, the skiing was. You know, I guess the, for some reason, like the colder weather, the drier weather didn't really affect it so much. But like when it was the spring and the summers when all the, the pollens and the, and the grasses and stuff like that were in the air. That was like the real problem for me with the environmental allergies. Now, the tennis, um, the tennis was a real lifesaver for me because um, I hated team sports because I because like I had this one. I had a fear of you know, having an asthma attack out there on the court and not being able to do anything about it. And second of all, I had this immense like pressure that I was going to let my teammates down or let somebody down. Um, right. it, even, it even like bled into my family. Like I felt like I was like a burden to my family at some times because you know, they were always rushing to me to the hospital or they always had to watch out for what I was eating for. And it was, it was, it was like that kind of thing like permeated my whole life with like that battle between like I'm responsible and yet at the same time, I'm also this like fragile, like you need to watch me kind of thing. So yeah. With tennis, what happened was is that it's an individual sport for one, um, and and the, the setup of tennis is basically you you run around um, for you know thirty seconds at a time and then rest. And so all that resting and changing sides and all the stuff that went along with tennis um, really suited my ability to catch my breath and to it's it suited my asthma. So therefore, you know it, it, the pressure of having to be having to having someone else on the court to be responsible for wasn't there. And, you know, it, it helps that I was, I picked up a racket and I was pretty good at it. So it was one of those things that just like from the, from, from pretty much the moment I picked up a racket, you know, I was just like, this is, this is what I want to do. Which was uh, how, how old were um, you? I was five or six. Tennis just like, I, was, I just loved it. And then Andre Agassi came along and I, I wanted to follow in his footsteps and go on the pro tour and all that stuff. And I, I held on to that dream, you know, basically through college and, and for slightly a little bit after college. Now, as far as the substances go, um, this is another rule of tennis is that, you know, tennis was like the priority of my life. Like that when I'm, when I say like I was planning on being a professional tennis player, like that was like legitimately every day of my life from ages five till 20 was like, that was in the back of my head. I have to do whatever I can to, to be a professional tennis player. So that was the number one priority of my life. Nothing was ever getting in the way of that. Um, I did get drunk a few times um, as a kid. One time it was, uh, I guess we were probably like 13 maybe. Yeah. And me and my buddy were at my parents' house and they went out for the night and we just kind of got in the liquor cabinet and started doing shots. And we, I mean, ran around the house, got goofy and like did whatever kids do when they're drunk. Like I don't really remember much of the night, but I do remember the next day I was like, that doesn't feel so good. Like that didn't, it wasn't like I was hung over. I don't think we were capable of drinking enough to get hung over, but I had just like a thing in the back of my head where like that might have not been the right thing to do. Right. It just didn't feel, it just didn't sit well with me. So, you know, it, like four years went by and I didn't drink or touch any drugs or anything because I was for one, you know, like that reaction I had, that emotional hangover was just like, I, I don't, I just, it just, I, all I can say is that it just did not feel right to me. Like, it, like a lot of alcoholics you'll hear about talking about how the first time they drank, how it was like, they they arrived they found this this like spiritual experience where they felt okay and they felt everything was going to be fine for me it was kind of the exact opposite like i had this feeling like crap like that uh, that's not right like something about that is very wrong so in the back of my head i always had that 
And then uh, the next time I got drunk was in high school. And this time, it had been probably four years since the previous time. So I'm like, you know what? Like, I'll try that again. Like, there was a big party. It was like end of the year. I put a bunch of liquor into a drug and took it up to the party and got drunk and ended up throwing up everywhere and like got marker dogs. I passed out early. I mean, it was a complete disaster. Yeah. And, and the next thing that happened was that I was supposed to play in a tennis tournament the next day with my mom. Um, she was my partner for the finals of this tennis tournament. And I, and I got home and I was like, mom, I ate something bad last night. I, I can't play in the tournament today. And uh, she was like, are you, are you hung over or did you really eat something bad last night? I was like, no, no, I really, I think I ate something bad. I just feel really awful. And so then like if I trace my alcoholism back to that point, yeah, that's a lie. And there's a consequence right there. Right. Two classic signs of alcoholism. But for me, what I got out of that was like, this is going to get in the way of tennis. and I can't have that. What, what I'm amazed by is that you had one experience when you're 13, which, you know, by some standards is young, by some standards is not young at all. But the fact that you did it then, and then you never touched it again until you're 17, you, you go, wow. If I'm your parent, I'm thinking, man, he's totally clean. Like we're, yeah. we're free and clear on that one. <laughs> you know, that, that's what's really striking to me as I hear you say that. Mm-hmm. It was that late, you know, that that's, yeah, so I mean, anyway, I sorry to interrupt. Go no, on. That's all right. So, I mean, so on that point actually is that that experience freaked me out so much that I actually didn't drink again until college from that experience. So that was probably my junior year of high school. And, um, so that experience was so bad that I just didn't touch any alcohol again until my, until my freshman year in college. And then, so I went to college on a tennis scholarship, small division two school. Um, so what happened was, is that my senior year in Vermont, um, you know, I was like doing all the tennis training. I was training in the mornings before school, going to play tennis after school, playing on the weekends, playing tournaments all around New England, all the, all the things I needed to do. But I got really sick my senior year in Vermont. I got mono. And I had to miss like three months of school right in the middle of my senior years, which is when a lot of the colleges will look at you and your grades and your tennis record and all that stuff. And I was like, so my, I kind of had to make a decision. And as like my dream of being a professional tennis player, going to college wasn't really on the map. Like it, I, like it was, it was uh, if you go to college as a tennis player, like you're kind of like, you're kind of really behind the eight ball already. At the time I was growing up, it was yeah. like you graduate high school and you go to play professional tennis. That's how it went. So the senior year, the sickness I got, I mean, first of all, if I'm being completely honest, it was a blessing for me because I hated the social situation. I hated the social scene because it's still all the social anxiety from a kid was now still with me. Like I still hated going to parties. I still hated like all the other kids. Like I just felt uncomfortable in social situations. And so that's where tennis, playing tennis all the time was like a release for me. Like I could, I could go out and I could play tennis and I'd be, it's almost like a meditation. So I uh, did a postgraduate year in Florida at a tennis academy in Tampa and playing, this is playing with some of like, actually the number one ranked junior player in the world was in my, in my graduating class um, from this high school. So it was like the best of the best. And I, and I went there with the intention of like, maybe not going to college, maybe going to college. But then as the year went on, some colleges started to recruit me and this one college in North Carolina recruited me and offered me a scholarship. And so I went up there, I went to college in North Carolina and um, still drinking, like, so college kids, the way the college kids drank at my school was basically every day, mostly, yeah. maybe, maybe like Thursday through Sunday for whatever. And for me, um, it was once in a while. Um, it was really like tennis was still a priority. Like I was on the tennis team. I still want to be a professional tennis player. Like it was still, like I still, if I had, like my life was a complete check. Alcohol was not an issue. 
like when I would drink, it wouldn't really get that every once in a while, I'll get a little crazy and call but it. But I mean, it wasn't even like you were guarding yourself against it at this point. You didn't no. realize that it was. Looking back, looking back, I had sort of a built-in fear around it from those two experiences as a kid. Yeah. I kind of had that in the back of my head that like, you know, those two times didn't really go so well. So I should probably watch out for this. But at the same time, like for me, that translated as like, I'm just focusing on tennis. Like tennis is way more important to me. Yeah. So all through college, um, I actually blew my, blew my knee out my freshman year playing basketball. Um, my tennis coach was not thrilled about that. But um, that was kind of my first like break from tennis. in yeah. um, I mean, ever since I was five. And it was, uh, it was miserable. I was like, I miss ten- Like I need to play tennis. Like I miss it. I went home that summer, rehabbed the knee, came back my sophomore year, back on the tennis team. And then my senior year, the coach and I kind of didn't get along. And, and I kind of got, it was recommended that I, that I just kind of take some time off from tennis and not play on the team. So I was kind of, I was kind of burnt out at that point too. I was, you know, I kind of was starting to realize that maybe the professional tour wasn't for me. So the drinking kind of progressed, but when the drinking really, really progressed was when I graduated college, and went to New Jersey for the summer, worked on the Jersey Shore um, at, at, uh, in, in Atlantic City. And I mean, we partied a lot, lots of cocaine, lots of alcohol. And that was the first time, and I can point directly to tennis not being involved. Like there was no reason for me not to drink. So you'll hear a lot about like athletes or people that are successful where they're like, the alcohol will take over whatever is successful for them. Yeah. For me, it was kind of like, when I lost that, that when I lost tennis or when I stopped playing tennis, it was like a, it was like the door opened and the alcoholism was like, Hey, I'm coming in now. You replaced it with that. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm struck with on that one though, is that you went from really not even drinking that much to all of a sudden you're doing cocaine and you know, Jersey shore. So that, (laughs) that, that, you know, makes me wonder, do you feel like in your own experience and in that of your clients, does it, is it something that's in your DNA? It's genetic, a genetic dependence on it, um, or a combo of, of, you know, a need, you know, you said you had this, this need to feel safe. And now this is maybe somewhere else where you could hide since tennis isn't there. But, but that feels extreme to me right there. Like that feels like, you know, you went from zero to 90 pretty quickly. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that speaks to that, you know, looking back on, this is why I can look back on those times when I was, you know, basically mostly the 17 year old time, but the the first time, like with the first, the emotional hangover that I got. And then the second time with like, basically I started lying and there was a consequence right off the bat. So for me, and again, this this goes back to alcohol being or drugs or whatever it is being a symptom of a greater problem for a person. There's behaviors that I can see in my clients that, will predispose them to the alcoholism. And I can see it in myself too, like growing up. Like, and again, it is a lot to do with anxiety and that lack of safety. Like you, as it's a coping mechanism, alcohol becomes a coping mechanism. And they always say one of the big things in recovery is alcohol worked for me until it didn't. Like it was, it was something that really covered up my anxiety. You know, I became the life of the party. I could talk to girls, girls liked me. I would tell jokes. I was dancing around like, I was never, I was never like an angry drunk or anything, but I was definitely a different person when I drank. So that's one of the huge things is like a non-alcoholic will have a few drinks and basically be the same person, maybe a little happier, maybe a little louder, but if you get an alcoholic and they hit, they hit their little threshold, whichever it is, like five, six drinks, whatever it is, you will see a a distinct change in their behavior. 
jump yeah. from like the sober person to them. And that was me to a T. When you get sober, now you have, you, you want to have those same reactions and those same behaviors, but yet you, you have to figure out now, okay, what's really behind it? Like it can't, I can't have the drink or I can't smoke weed or I can't, you know, pop a pill. Like I have to figure out what is at the root of this? Like, what do I need to do? Like you have to find other things now to, yeah. to cope. So how do you, you know, just thinking of listeners of this show, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I have to imagine that there's somebody who's listening, who's, uh, you know, got an issue with addiction. There has to be out of all the listeners. Um, but then I, I even want to take it and apply it to um, someone who, you know, someone who's not, but they're dealing with maybe it's it's not alcohol it's not drugs that's that's their addiction but they have something else what are some of the uh the strategies that you use to help your clients or to help yourself with overcoming you know what like what is it that eventually brought you to your knees and was it one defined time or did you get sober and then slip up and then get sober. Like, have you been sober right from the moment that you first got sober or oh, what, no, no, definitely not? Okay. Um, the, that's a, that's actually pretty rare for me. The, the tipping point and the, the, let me start with the clients. So for my clients, one thing that the strategy that I, that I use for myself and for my clients is you cannot forget the pain. Like you cannot, no matter what happens, forget what, why you stopped drinking in the first place. Cause what's going to happen when you get sober is that you're going to get sober for say 30 days and you're going to be like, Oh, that's, this feels really good. Like my life is kind of coming back together. You know, the wife, the wife and I are getting along, like all these things, like the job's going well. And you'll be like, you know what? It'll creep in the back of your head. And it's, it's, I'm not just like, this is not a general, this is like a fact. It will creep in the back of your head. Like maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe I wasn't, maybe I overreacted by being sober. Maybe I can just, you know, have a couple on Friday night. And then the longer you, for the first 120 days, while you're getting sober, that thought will be very, very powerful. So what, what I always tell my clients is you have to do two things. You have to remember the pain, remember what it was like on that, the reason basically you called me or the reason that you said, I can't do this anymore. And then also, let's take a look at your history. Like, let's play the tape forward. So, okay, so maybe back in college, you were able to drink successfully and get up and go to class, or maybe even when you were in your 20s you could do this. You could get up and work, you know, getting to work on the morning wasn't a problem and your relationships were good. But then, you know, the past, let's look at the past five years. How many times have you had a drink, had one drink and said, okay, that's it. I'm not going to have any more. Or is the majority of the time you having, saying you're going to have one or two and end up having, you know, 15 or it's four days later and you're still drinking like me, you know, like let's play the tape forward here. What is like, what is the likely outcome of this? And so if you can combine those two things, remembering that pain and then getting them convinced that the that recent history is how it's going to go. Cause once you lose control as an alcoholic, you would never get it back. It's the, it's the pickle cucumber analogy. Once you, once a, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, you cannot make it back into a cucumber. And that's, that's an alcoholic. You know, they say the brain is pickled. That's what it comes from. You know, I, I think that is, you kind of, <laughs> I was hoping you'd have something like that. And I feel like, I feel like you, you, you just hit the nail on the head in terms of making, you know, your experience universal, even if listeners uh, have not particularly dealt with substance abuse, 
that yeah, I mean, idea, could, I'm just thinking of, you know, some of the people that you and I know in common who are mm-hmm. entrepreneurs in the fitness space yeah. and they talk about like, you know, getting up in the morning and you, you know, when you're hitting that snooze button, it's yeah. like, you know, are you going to get up? Are you going to go to the gym as you plan the night before? Or are you going to yeah. negotiate with yourself and, and, and forget how great it felt the day before when you actually <laughs> going to do? And it, it's a very, you know, it's a not quite, I mean, not nearly as extreme example, but I, I think the principles are the same. It's like remembering, whether it's remembering the pain of not doing something mm-hmm. or remembering the reward of doing something. I, I'm, I'm slightly shocked that it, like the number one thing you said is, is so simple in a way. It's so simple. Remember the pain. But I'm sure it's, you know, it's very extremely difficult to actually execute that. Yeah, because I mean, part of like having a disease like addiction is that, you know, the disease want the disease gets in the brain and it wants you to go back. It wants you to come back. Like it's saying, hey, come back. You know, there's there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is like, you know, community, um, air, food, water, all that stuff that humans need as an addict. When you feed your addiction, whether this is gambling, anger, sex, shopping, food, cocaine, alcohol, whatever it is, that your drug of choice becomes number one on that priority list. It becomes more important than survival. That's why you see like, you know, drunk drunks, like alcoholics will, will get down to like 130, like go from like 180 pounds to 130 pounds soaking wet because alcohol becomes more important than food. That's why they isolate because alcohol becomes more important than commu- than the community. You know, it's why they they don't they just don't care about anything. And I can speak to that. Like when I would when I would get in my drunk, like when I would get into the point where my addiction was kicking in, and like of course I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, you know, I would I would I would end up at some random bar with some random people that didn't know me from Adam because those are the people that aren't going to be like, hey, you need to stop that. That's the isolation. That's because like I knew that that was the, that was the way that my that I could get the alcohol that I wanted, the drugs that I wanted to keep myself alive is what I, what I thought. And so going back to my story, one of the things, um, it was November 21st, 2012, and it was 4 a.m. And I, uh, I had been on a two month run, a two month bender. Um, and it was the worst I've ever been. Like, I mean, when I used to drink, so I used to drink, my pattern was a binger. So I would go three, four, five days at a time. And maybe I, I could be good without it for two weeks be fine. Like everything's cool. I could have bottles of liquor in my cabinet, literally like open it up. There it is. No problem. Not going to drink it. But once I get it in, it's all bets are off. So this time though, these pet, these last two months of my drinking, it was like, it was, I was either awake or I was, I was either asleep or I was drunk and high. And the last two months of my drinking looked like four trips to the hospital, seven nights in jail for a DUI. Oh my God. Um, I lost my puppy. My puppy was in the car when I got the DUI. He got taken to the pound. My neighbors woke me up on my front lawn one time. I was, I was visiting my dad in Asheville. I got a call from my neighbors that like, looks like your front door has been bashed in. So I had my buddy go over there and sure enough, my drug dealer had broken into my house and stole my, my brand new 60 inch TV because I owed him $60. But like, this is all within two months. This was my two my rock bottom was two months long. And so it was 4 a.m. on the 21st of November. And I was supposed to be moving out of my house in four hours. What year is this? This is 2012. Okay. And so in four hours, I had, the movers were scheduled to come pick up all the boxes and the furniture. And if you'd walked into the house at 4 a.m., you would have found me sitting there at the table with drugs and alcohol in front of me, 
and the house would look like there was no boxes. There was nothing being packed up. Um, my dad had given me like a thousand dollars to put in the bank for the movers that had all been up my nose and down my throat. Um, there was, I had nothing. So basically at 4am I was sitting there by myself and just, I just said, you know what, this cannot go on. And I don't, I, and I, to this day, I cannot tell you what came over me or how it happened, but I can tell you that from the previous probably 10 years from the age of 28 till this point had been a steady, a, a, a steady, steady decline with some serious dips in it. Um, at age 33, I took a serious dive off of a cliff. 28 to 33 was a slow decline. Um, I went through a marriage, went through a girlfriend after the marriage. Um, I was doing commercial real estate in Miami. Um, I wasn't terribly good at commercial real estate because I was basically drunk and high all the time, but I did well enough to support myself and uh, living in Miami, doing Miami things. And then February 26th of 2007, I, uh, I, I was driving home. I was driving my car back from a bar from the night before, but I had been up all night and I, and I T-boned another car going through an intersection and blew a red light <clears throat> and just uh, no brushing my teeth, like still had the same clothes on from the night before. And that was my first DUI. And then my first trip to rehab. And that's what started. That was a five year stretch of, um, I went to, let's see, that, that rehab in March of that year in Florida. Then I went to another rehab in August of that year um, in Utah. Got back from Utah. And then for two years, I was basically drunk um, for two years, not doing anything, living in Miami, just kind of like hanging out, like try, working here, working there, but nothing really. And then I decided Miami was the problem. So I moved to North Carolina and things got exponentially worse. Now, this is in 2009 now. And um, it turns out that I got, I gave myself cancer twice in my mouth. The first time I had an ulcer that turned into squamous cell carcinoma and they removed that and um, they didn't know why I got it. I never dipped or anything. They didn't know why I got it. And then two years later, that cancer came back because I just kept drinking, binge drinking over that same area, um, brought the cancer back. So I had it removed again. And now, and also in 2009, so I survived the cancer. And then 2009, I, I fell off a balcony, 35 feet, the second story of a bar. All right, I'm going to stop you. I'm <laughs> going to stop you because all I'm thinking is there are so many times where you could have and, and maybe should have died. I mean, have you ever yeah. thought that? Have thought, you thought that? Yeah, I thought it all like, the time. Have you ever thought, why are you still here you know you really have have tempted fate yeah, and somehow you're still here mm-hmm. yeah you I mean, gotta get so what it what is it that you are here to do now and why do you think you were spared man um that's a really i mean i i just i just know that there was i mean my my story is littered with situations where you know like looking death in the face basically and or just close encounters whatever you want to call it but i'm here i feel this immense need to tell my story and to help men that have not necessarily even been through the addiction stuff the addiction stuff is a part of it on june 30th of last year i got a call that my sister had passed away from alcoholism and so i at that moment um that's when I called up, we have a mutual friend, Xander Fryer, and I called him up and I said, buddy, I need, I need, I need to find, I need to direct this. I need to find this, this niche where I can help these people before. Cause I paid every single consequence ever 
for alcoholism. I paid all these consequences, like every single consequence you can pay, except I didn't pay the final consequence. I was spared the final consequence, and my sister paid that consequence because it didn't look like mine. And it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to look like mine. You have a window. When you start struggling, that's when your window is opening. That's not when the world is closing up on you. The moment you start struggling, that's your window of opportunity to figure out how you're going to get, how you're, what, where is this going to go? Because it's not the end. I went through all these things. I walked through all these fires to show other people how to walk through their fires. All this, all this stuff that I went through is useless if I, can't, if I can't inspire someone to walk through a struggle they're having. You know, what, 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 did I, what did I go through it for? What are your beliefs in God or your, you know, your spirituality? Did you have something when you were younger? It sounds like you have something now. I don't know if it is. Yeah, I have something now. Um, when I was younger, um, we went to Sunday school a few times. I, again, like, honestly, like that took away from tennis. So I used to hate going. Um, and then no, there was no real religion in our house. Um, it wasn't like impressed upon. There was nothing really. But at the same time, it was like I naturally gravitated towards an awareness of things happening. Synchronicity. I know them now as synchronicities. A power greater than myself. I mean, I call it uni- the universe. Like it's, it's a f- the force, um, energy, whatever it is. There's something guiding us all along. There's, I don't believe in coincidences. There's only synchronicities. Like when things happen, like there's something, there's a greater power at work. There's just, there's a, there's, there's a force out there. There's no way like I didn't land correctly because I was aware of what was happening when I fell off the balcony. I landed correctly because I was supposed to land that way. I have uh, just a few questions before I let you go. Complete this sentence. The word no actually means what? Not, Not yet. And then I can elaborate on that. Yet is an acronym. You're eligible to. What's your go-to mantra when everything falls apart? Do you have, do you have something that, that comes to you? I have two, actually. One is um, my mindset sets me free. And that means when things go haywire, the tendency that we have is to like grab on tighter and control because we don't like it. We're uncomfortable. We have to control it. And that's all that's doing is exacerbating the problem. So if you think to yourself, like sit with your arms open and, and imagine your chest, like your rib cage opening up and your heart opening up and just say, my mindset sets me free. And the second one is it's so what now what for the longest time I struggled with threading my whole story together, my whole past, you know, I was sick as a kid. So then I had social anxiety and because of that, I had, um, alcoholism and because of that I had you know all these other things and basically going down a victim-ish road but if you can separate the events so so what now it does not mean like so what like whatever like it's not that it's not dismissive at all what it is is so what is the highest acknowledgement of what happened so what that happened now what are you going to do about it so what you were you were you had asthma and allergies as a kid and you were in the hospital a lot now what what are you going to do? Is that the story you, keep, you want to keep telling yourself that you're, that you're going to end up in the hospital again? It's the acknowledgement of the event or the, the traumatic experience or whatever it is. Acknowledge it, honor it, heal it, treat it, be with it. And then now what are you going to do? Like now what? If you, if you want to live in that story forever, go ahead. But if you, if you want higher, if you want to be your best self and be high, the highest version of yourself, now what? What are you going to do? Yeah, I love that one. Last, last question. If you could give your younger self advice, 
what age would you choose to intervene and what would the advice be? I would say the age would be pretty young, um, around eight. And the advice would just be breathe. Like, and not necessarily, not like the asthma breathe, but like, I just remember feeling like that unsafe feeling of being uptight, like just, just breathe, like it's going to be okay. Well, Sam Morris, thank you so much for sitting down with me. And uh, I, I am very excited to get the feedback on this episode. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate you opening up the way you did. Thank Matt, you. thank Yeah, I want to thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, like I, I'm, I don't know if this, the story, I've told the story before, but it, the, way, the way we met is so funny because I was literally listening to a podcast um, up to point to Craig Valentine's event and you were the guest on the podcast and I pulled to the hotel the morning of the event and you got out of the car in front of me <laughs> as I was shutting down the podcast. So, I mean, talk about like no coincidences. Yeah, exactly. Synchronicities. And then we ended up sitting at the same table. We hit it off and it's been a pleasure to, to know you this past year. And like, you've inspired me so much and your podcast is amazing. And to see you up there on the TV, man. I mean, it's, it's awesome to see what you do, what you do. I'm really, really, it's a really honor to be part of your life. I appreciate it. And uh, tell everybody the name of your podcast as well. We'll put a link to that. It's, is it through the fires podcast? Is that what it's it's just, just through the fires. Yeah. Fires. Yeah. 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 So everybody go check that out and listen to Sam. Um, Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you too, bud. Okay. As always, there are so many takeaways, but I'll keep it to my top three. Number one, probably my favorite saying of Sam's, and I heard him say it the first time I met him, so what, now what? It pretty much covers this entire 10,000 no's topic. Basically, it's saying, yeah, you've got problems, you've got setbacks, you've experienced sickness and tragedy, what are you going to do about it? For me, that simple phrase, so what, now what, prevents us from slipping into a victim mindset and at least sets us on the right path to a solution. Number two, You cannot forget the pain. Again, very simple and straightforward. But Sam said this was the number one thing that addicts need to remember once they finally recovered. There are many things that would be nice to do or that would feel comfortable right now, but you need to remember that those were the very things that ripped your life apart in the first place. And I think this applies to less extreme aspects of our lives as well. You eat that extra scoop of ice cream or blow off that workout too many times in a row, you can't complain to people that you don't feel as good about yourself physically. But if you remember the pain, for example, of not being able to run around with your kids because you're so out of shape, that pain can be leveraged to help you make a more disciplined choice the next time you're faced with a plate full of glazed donuts. Number three, my mindset sets me free. This is one of the mantras Sam uses along with the breathing exercise. And the basic premise is that trying to control everything is a losing proposition. There's a wisdom in breathing and accepting things as they are and allowing yourself to flow more through relaxation as opposed to trying to muscle your way through every challenge you face. All right, that's it. Thank you to Sam Morris for sitting down with me and sharing such important life lessons. Thank you for listening, for supporting our cause. If you feel like you've benefited from 10,000 No's, please share it with your friends so more people can be impacted and helped in some way. Any reviews you leave on iTunes really help the show's cause. We know it takes a few minutes, so we appreciate them. And if you're not subscribed yet, you should do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. 
If you enjoyed my conversation with Sam today, you will likely dig some of these past episodes. Their links will be in the show notes. Tim Crayley, who is also an addiction counselor, he talks a lot about the role of shame in relation to addiction. Results coach Heather Hayward, who helps business professionals and artists rediscover their flame of inspiration. Or Amy Budden of Connect the Mind, who uses hypnotherapy and guided meditation to help people train their brains for more optimal success and happiness. We hope to see you back here next Friday for more 10,000 No's. You can follow me on social media for announcements and promo videos of who's next. Those handles are at Matty Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And you can email us at info at 10,000nos.com if you want to be added to our mailing list. Thanks again for being here and have a great week. Thank you.